KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. My stepdad, Chip, was leading a group text with 30-some-odd people that they maxed out that they couldn't actually get more people into, sending shot-by-shot updates, current and former players in the chat, friends, you know, the number of people that reached out and were following and supporting was so humbling and overwhelming. And our guest this week is Drexel men's head golf coach, Ben Feld. He's been the Dragons head coach uh, since 2016. Ben, thanks so much for coming in. Sure thing, man. So before we kind of get into your career, college golf, for people that aren't familiar, kind of, we were talking about this a little bit off the air. How does it work with regards to your season? Uh, You were saying it's split and they are two parts of the season that carry equal weight. Yeah, a little bit different than, you know, traditional college sports where there's, you know, season that runs all the way through. You have your conference tournament championship season at the end. College golf split more into two seasons that are both championship counting. So uh, when guys come back to class in August or in our case at Drexel, when, you know, we start class a little bit later, we've got our fall slate, which pretty much runs from Labor Day to the end of October. Shut it down really through the holiday pick it back up and when the guys come back from holiday break beginning of January and full steam ahead with tournaments starting in mid-February heading a little bit south and uh, running through the end of April with our conference championship and postseason at that point so a little hiatus in the middle but we kind of look at it as one long season with a couple weeks off in the middle. Do you approach the two parts differently or kind of the same way? It's definitely a little bit different, right? In the spring, it's very much everything gearing up towards our conference championship. Um, We're coming out of the winter where geographically we obviously face some challenges that certain schools in our conference or that we face that are further south don't. So, you know, we're we're trying to compete and get south a little bit more. Uh, So it really is more of a different approach from a scheduling standpoint where coming out of the summer – Everybody's on a pretty level playing field. And then we've really got to start our spring season. I say spring, you know, in quotes, because we start in the middle of February. There might be a foot of snow on the ground here, but really trying to get as many competitive reps as we can so that we can be as prepared as possible for the end of April. And how much of a obstacle is the weather? As you mentioned, especially in your conference, you're going South Carolina, Virginia, stuff like that, maybe places that, you know, especially you get down towards Carolina, North Carolina, stuff like that. They're not maybe dealing with a lot of what we are. Is it the same? Because I always talk to baseball and softball coaches about the challenge they face. You know, everybody plays the same schedule, but, you know, the schools down south and in the Midwest or in the West have been outdoors the whole time where maybe you haven't. Do you find the same kind of of challenges? Yeah. I mean, it's look, we'd be lying to ourselves if there, there weren't certain adversities that we face by, you know, being inside for the vast majority of that month of January. Um, and that's kind of why we try to shorten the runway in the amount of time that we're on campus before we go to, you know, get south to practice and compete. But yeah, I mean, you can't replicate outdoor practice. We have a great indoor facility over on campus. We've got you know, launch monitor, putting green, all of the information and stuff. But at the end of the day, we are hitting into a screen and we're not seeing the ball fly on a daily basis, which a lot of these Southern guys are are doing. And we've got to find other ways around the fringes to make up for that 
disadvantage. And a lot of that comes down to the kinds of kids that you recruit and being very upfront with them about that and finding guys that are willing to, you know, almost use that as a chip on their shoulder to work harder as opposed to guys who are going to use this as, as an excuse to why we can't do certain things. One thing I've always been curious about when you're in competition at a tournament, what is your role in the moment? Are you in the clubhouse or are you walking with certain players? Are you hanging out at certain points where you know guys are going to cross over and get like how what's your not so much your role, but how do you handle tournaments? What do you do? Yeah. So in college golf, the coaches can do everything that a caddy can do except carry the bag. So we can be as in the weeds and hands on as we feel needed. Every guy is a little bit different in terms of what they need on the golf course. Some guys are like, give me a snack and leave me the heck alone. And other guys are like, hey, coach, can you walk nine holes with me? And let's just go through our process. Some guys are, you know, needy's not the right word, but some guys just are require more coaching on course, which is fine. And there are two of us. There's me, my assistant, AJ. And week by week, it's different, right? Sometimes it's about how the course plays, whether there are different spots or maybe blind spots or, um, you know, risk reward par fives where we're walking through the proper decisions of, you know, banging a ball up towards the green versus laying up to a comfortable yardage. So different elements of strategy versus spending chunks of time with an individual player varies. I mean, the last two years, AJ has spent every hole of every tournament walking with Angelo, who graduated last year, and we've kind of spent the first two events this year figuring out how he's going to allocate his time now because he's like, man, I feel naked out here without Angelo. I don't know what to do. And we've got, you know, some new faces in the lineup. So, you know, it changes year over year as the roster changes, but um, it's an ongoing science of, of how to properly allocate our time and energy out there. In a tournament setting, you know, I would imagine when you're with the players, you know, when you're having workouts and stuff like that, it's more coach, less psychologist kind of just counsel. Yep. Is that reversed when you're out there? Are you are you more coach or more just kind of bounce things off of, hey, you're doing great, don't worry, let the last one go. You're go like where where does it fall? Hundred percent. We're doing we're doing minimal to no golf coaching on the golf course, right? Once you're out there, you know, we talk a lot about preparation and all of the preparation leading up to tournaments is, you know, that's the stuff in the dark that nobody sees and that's the kind of stuff where you got to kind of put your nose in the dirt and grind through it to be as prepared as you can. And then tournament is like, you know, lights on, hit the stage. This is the fun part where you get to show off your preparation. So at that point, you are who you are. The game that you have is the game that you have. And um, we are very much in the moment with our guys focusing on yardage, target, process, nothing really about golf swing, nothing mechanical at all. We're just focused on executing the task right in front of them. Now you still play and you were in the U.S. Amateur. Was that you qualified and uh, was the amateur back in August? Yes. What was that experience like qualifying for it and getting the chance to play in it? Uh, it was it was the coolest golf experience of my life. Personally, I've gotten to do some cool stuff on the caddying side of things with uh, Chris, who I know was also in here at a few months back, you know, being able to be present at uh, a couple of U.S. Opens. And a lot of that helped me, actually, in knowing what to expect um, and understand what was required of the golfer at a USGA championship. Uh, but the week that had up at Ridgewood and Arcola was 
it was so special. Something that I've been banging my head against the wall for a little while and trying to qualify for a USGA championship. And then to do it at a place that's an hour and a half drive up the turnpike, was able to have family, a couple friends uh, up there supporting. And we just we just had an absolute blast. But it was a real validator of, you know, I as with all of the things I have going on, continuing to put work into my golf game is a real priority. And it felt very validating that, you know, that work had really started to yield some results. And the qualifier uh, was a lot of fun, felt like a real breakthrough. Shot 64 in the second round of the qualifier to get in. And then going up to Ridgewood, I really had no idea what to expect of myself. I mean, we're going against the best amateur golfers in the world and the best college players in the world. You go up there, it's like a 90% field full of college guys. And here I am, I was like, you know, one of the grandpas of the field at 31, but you know, wasn't sure, look, I'm not like the longest hitter. So wasn't sure if the length would overwhelm me or the level of competition would overwhelm me difficulty of the golf course. And was really in the mix on the second day, had a chance to make match play and unfortunately missed the playoff for match play by one shot. But it really validated that my game is in a place where you know, with proper preparation, I can compete at that level, which, you know, was my biggest takeaway. In the qualifier, I think you shot, you mentioned the second day. I mean, you finished, I think, five under. I mean, that's your rolling at that point. Like, were you feeling it in the moment? How how yeah. conscious are you of your score at when you play or you just most, you're hitting, it's going well, you're getting the looks you want things are dropping like where are you when you're in a, in the zone like that yeah and those qualifiers are are interesting where you can usually have a little bit of a feel of whether you're close or whether you're a little bit behind the eight ball coming in and maybe you need to make a couple birdies and the structure of that qualifier was 36 holes in one day um so played pretty well in the morning i should say I hit the ball pretty well in the morning and really didn't get many putts to fall um, so it was 71 in the morning. I looked at the leaderboard in between rounds. I saw that like 66 maybe was leading, putting two rounds of golf together on a difficult golf course like Rolling Green is hard. So I figured if I could go out and shoot, you know, something that started with a six in the afternoon that, you know, I would have at least a half decent chance of being there at the end and came out and started making some putts, was continuing to hit the ball well. And that afternoon round was really, really the best competitive round that I've ever put together. Made some really meaningful 10 to 15 foot par putts to hold the round together in the middle of the back nine and a couple of birdies coming in. But, you know, coming down the stretch, it was funny. I felt good about where I was. You still really don't know, but I never asked. So one of my, uh, actually my boss over at Drexel, Kerry de Blasio, was caddying for me that day out at um, out at Rolling Green. And I mean, you know, he's an improving golfer, but you know, he's probably a nine or 10 handicap. And um, I knew Carrie was really nervous coming down the stretch and didn't want to put too much on his plate. I knew that he knew kind of where things were, but he was stone faced coming down the stretch. And I really didn't ask until after the final putt dropped on 18 is fortunate enough to make a birdie on that hole. And the first thing I asked him was, did we do it? And he said, Oh yeah. And um, it was one of those things where you kind of go underwater, you hold your breath, you come up for air on the other side, and you either hit your goal or you didn't. And that was the best feeling. You mentioned you missed the cut by one stroke. What's the emotion when you realize that that's obviously frustrating, but you played well? It's an incredible 
experience. You talked about being old. Like, what's the emotional checklist you go through when you kind of process everything from that experience? Yeah, there was, uh, it was, it was all over the place. So I made a, a, what it felt like a very meaningful, like 25 foot putt on the last hole. And the battle of that day was just the, that was the most fun I've ever had on a golf course. Just kind of didn't play my best, but I really just fought my butt off and hold some meaningful putts and to hold that putt on the last hole. And just on the, Picked up my ball, hugged AJ, who's my assistant coach at Drexel, who was caddying for me, and just started to get teary-eyed on the back of that green. I looked over and saw my brother. Immediately thought of my dad when I saw uh, my brother. My dad passed away back in 2018, and uh, when I saw my brother, I just kind of felt him there. And then coming off the golf course, I felt very proud of the way that I battled. As you kind of watch the leaderboard, you realize at a certain point in time, like, damn, this is going to just not be enough. I knew that I had poured every ounce that I had into the day so I could hold my head high. Uh, Where the disappointment probably hit the most was the next day at home sitting on my couch watching one of the guys I played with on TV and match play. And like, holy smokes, could have been me if I could have just this, that, the other. But 95% of the emotions after the fact were so overwhelmingly positive. The number of people that reached out or were following, there was this group text that my stepdad, because they had limited spectators out there. So my stepdad, Chip, was leading a group text with 30 some odd people that they maxed out that they couldn't actually get more people into sending shot by shot updates. Uh, some of my current and former players in the chat, friends all over the place. So, you know, the number of people that reached out and were following and supporting and all of that was so humbling and overwhelming. And I, I just felt such a sense of fortune and luck that so many people that are interested in what I'm doing, that was probably the coolest part of the whole experience. What's your earliest golf memory? Was it a sport you grew up with? Yes. You know, probably. Still can't really put a finger on what the age was, 10, 11, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, going out and playing golf with my grandparents at Green Valley up here out in uh, Lafayette Hill, uh, where I play out of today. And they are still there and down in Aventura, Florida, where they would go for the winter, where we would go visit them over, you know, the holiday and New Year and just kind of being able to make decent contact from an early age. I didn't start to take it seriously until you know, I got into, uh, you know, the middle of high school was a little bit late in that regard. But, you know, just going out and swinging the club with them uh, at an early age is kind of, you know, they were really the ones responsible for kind of get me on the escalator, if you will. Talk about about halfway through high school, you start to kind of take it seriously. What kind of led to that? Was it you were playing and you started to realize you're pretty good or were you kind of looking for an outlet for something to, to, to do? What you know, what, what kind of led to it going to the next level? Yeah, I was fortunate in my, you know, in my setup and situation at the time. I lived out of Blue Ball Country Club. My grandpa had actually, he was a college, he played basketball at Cornell. You know, I played a lot of uh, hoops growing up, and that was my first real passion and love. And, you know, at some point, you look in the mirror and you realize you're a 5 eight Jewish kid and that there's, you know, there's no glory in this. And I was half decent at golf at the time, maybe, you know, at 15, 16, I was a 
three, four handicap. I don't know. And, but he always thought I could be much more in the sport. And he's like, Hey, like give this basketball thing up and run with the run with golf and see what happens. And, um, I did that. And I was very fortunate at the time that, you know, my coach, swing coach, golf instructor was Mike Dinda, who was the golf coach at Drexel at the time. And that was my only opportunity to play collegiate golf. And it was because I had this relationship with Mike and he gave me an opportunity that I'm forever grateful for. Do you remember the first time once you really start to focus on it that you realized you were pretty good? Like, was there a first around or or just a shot you hit where you were like go yeah um 2008 was the golf association of philadelphia's junior boys championship huntington valley and i'm very very new to competitive golf and don't have a whole lot of acumen or resume and shot maybe i think it was 76 in the 18 hole qualifier made the championship flight and won a couple matches at Huntington Valley. And this is just kind of off of very raw, unpolished, I guess, talent at the time. And um, coming out of that week was like, you know, I can do this a little bit. I just have to keep working. And looking back at it, I had a very pedestrian college career. I was still young and immature and didn't have the appreciation for practice and proper preparation. And, you know, I was a college kid. I liked having a good time. And I needed those years to get to where I was. I look back at them as like, you know, dang, I really wish that I could have college golf back because that could have been a lot of, a lot more fun. But um, it ultimately pushed me into where I am now, which has given me the appreciation for the process of improvement. And what's cool about our game is I'm 31 and feel like I'm still trending in an upward direction. What part of your game, I mean, I know you're always working to get better, but what, what part has come relatively easily, and I don't mean to insinuate that it's easy by any means, but and what part has been the biggest challenge, has required the most work to yeah. to get better at? I've, uh, I would say that the, the short game aspect of it has always come relatively natural to me. You know, shots around the green. All like all, anything around the green has always come pretty easily to me, and then with practice, I've been able to refine that further to where that really is the kind of the backbone of my game. I've always been someone who's needed to improve their ball striking. Um, I don't hit it long, so you better hit it straight. Although I'm significantly longer than I was a couple of years ago through doing some a lot of stretching and yoga and stuff like that, as I've kind of started to take my body a little bit more seriously and realizing what I want to accomplish in this game. And um, the ball striking, I've made great, great strides on the past year, year and a half. And my putting has come a long way, really more so this summer, and just kind of getting back to some basics. The short game area, I would say, has been the area that, quote unquote, has come easiest to me. And I think the ball striking, full swing aspect of it is something that I'm continually trying to improve. You mentioned yoga, stretching. I'm curious, is weight training something that when it comes to, you know, if you want to try to hit the ball longer or is it counterproductive? Like what that does doesn't necessarily yeah. help you. As long as you're doing strategic things, the right things. Not just um, lifting to lift. Right. A lot of these guys are using this, the TPI program, the Titleist Performance Institute, where they have more golf focused 
exercises, uh, regimens that focus on right movements, right muscles that, you know, are all about increasing strength and flexibility in the right areas of the body. But I mean, you look at these guys on tour that are some of the best players in the world and they don't look like they used to, right? I mean, guys like Rom and Rory and DJ and I mean, these guys are athletes that they're waking up on tournament mornings at five o'clock in the morning or earlier at times, and they're getting a weight session in mm-hmm. on the days that they're competing. And that was just never the case. You look at a guy like Lee Trevino, who might have grabbed a hot dog before an afternoon tea time and marched to the first tee. And, you know, now it's a, it takes a village with diet, nutrition, weight training, yoga, mental coach, full swing coach, short game coach, putting. I mean, these guys have a portfolio of, you know, of instructors and professionals helping them achieve maximum performance, right? And a big part of that is through their body, through the weight training and the stretching and flexibility and all that. So I'm obviously not doing all of that, but incorporating stuff to allow my body to move as well as it can as I get older has definitely been a focus of mine. Time for a break on -on one-on-one. We will have more with Ben Feld right after this. And we are back on one-on-one, continuing our conversation with head Drexel men's golf coach, Ben Feld. You went to Germantown Academy for high yeah. school, right? Now, I'm curious, because I like to ask folks when they go high school, you know, is it a, whoa, speed of the game, stuff like that. With golf, did it feel different playing at Drexel than it did at Germantown Academy? Because it, it is kind of an individual thing. I mean, you're probably playing some different courses and stuff like that. But was there a a big adjustment or was it just different type of coaching focusing on different things? Yeah. It, and high school golf is goofy as well, where I would say that it's more like the summer events, like the gap stuff or Philly PGA, where we're really honing our skills. High school golf is fun. And I really enjoyed that aspect of it, but it's not like, at least in this area, you know, it's not necessarily like high school basketball where, you know, you've got a really intense and high level mm-hmm. of competition where it's like oh man the game's faster this or that because at the end of the day golf is golf but the courses you play are longer um obviously the guys that you're playing against are better and it's an adjustment to the travel and the missing class and just the whole time management aspect of it is a lot to put on an 18 year old's plate and i now see that from the other side of it and look back and I'm like, yeah, you know, like I had no chance <laughs> given <laughs> given how, you know, immature or just, you know, young and naive I was at the time. And, you know, now having the opportunity to help prepare kids to do it and give them the tools and resources to be as prepared as they can coming into this environment. I would say that's really the biggest adjustment. Do you think the fact that you kind of feel like, you know, you you left a little bit on the table because your immaturity as a player at Drexel, has that helped you as a coach? You can see maybe some of the things that kids are doing that you remember doing and you can appreciate it and and stuff like that. Has it as much maybe as a frustrates you looking back at your days as a player? Has it made you a better coach? For sure. Yeah. And I mean, look, we want the guys that come to Drexel to have a full and rewarding college experience while there. I think that college golf and academics, you can certainly do both of those at a really high level at the same time. 
And we just tell our guys, like, look, we don't want to tell you not to have fun or be social or do things that college kids do, but you just got to you just got to pick and choose your spots to do it, right? If we we don't have practice for a day or two, we get back from a tournament, you want to go hang out with your buddies, like, by all means. Night before we leave for a tournament, you know, let's get ready and let's be ready to compete. And these are all things that I didn't do. But um, it's definitely helpful to be able to know what it's like in their shoes not all that long ago and um, try to kind of guide them through because they're being pulled in a million directions when they're in camp and immersed in campus life. And um, we want them to enjoy it, but we also want them to maximize their golf experience and their academic experience too. So we're very open with them and talking about what the expectations are and want them to feel like they aren't like, you know, in prison or can't do things that they want to do, but just have to be mature enough and responsible enough to and accountable to your teammates to do those things when it's appropriate. So when does coaching enter the lexicon? It do, it doesn't sound like during your playing days that was something that was that would be on your radar kind yeah, of totally how to come not. together. Yeah, graduated 2013. So when I graduated, Chris Crawford had just finished his freshman year. It became pretty clear pretty early that he was going to be a special player. I had no idea what I wanted to do professionally. Coach at the time said, "Hey, why don't you, you know, stay on as a graduate assistant?" to get a free master's degree, you know, hang around the program, help out, figure out what you want to do and did that. And thought process was, Hey, I can basically see this through to the end of Chris's career and help guide him and just see where this goes. Not that he needed much of my guidance, but, you know, so hung around 2016 heading into Chris's senior season and the position of head golf coach had opened up. They asked me to be the interim head coach for that spring, which at, you know, was 24 at the time, was happy to uh, help out and take the team through the spring, not thinking at any point in time that seven years later, I'd be sitting here having this conversation. You know, we had a successful spring and had a lot of fun doing that. Um, AJ, who was my academic advisor in college, who Turned out he just actually officiated my wedding back in April. We had developed a relationship back then, and he came on to help me out that spring as the, uh, let's call it the grown-up in the room. <laughs> and um, we had a great time. We decided to interview for the position that May, I guess it was, and uh, off we went. Um, and I was starting my other profession as a financial advisor at the same time. And just kind of had support from all angles that said, hey, run with these things until something's got to give. And we're still here. So it's been it's been a fun ride. Were you surprised when you got the when they I guess they took the interim off and, and gave you the program? Like, were you genuinely surprised or did you start to feel like yeah. it kind of seems like the pieces are coming together and this might be mine? Yeah, I mean. Look, there was such a sense of familiarity with the guys in the program. And, you know, I can imagine the concern from Drexel's side was, hey, maybe there's too much familiarity, right? I was teammates with a lot of these guys really for the first couple of years. And um, they said, hey, do you want the job? And my response was, are you sure? <laughs> so, you know, look, at this point, I'm 25 and, you know, I'm still a kid, obviously. But, um, 
you know, I had definitely grown up a good bit through my a couple of years as a graduate assistant. You know, I'd gotten to know a lot of people in the college golf space, uh, other coaches, and um, I felt pretty unprepared to start, but I knew that I could make an impact and I knew that I could do it at a high level. And I felt that my standing as a 25-year-old, while it would be challenging in a lot of ways, that I could connect with kids mm -hmm. at a different level than somebody in their 40s, 50s, 60s could. And I could speak their language and I could understand the challenges that they would face on campus and that that for the right kids would be a draw to come and play for me. And that was really the platform that I stood on where like, hey, like I'm going to continue to mature and get better at the day to day nuances of this job. But like I can connect with and make a difference for these kids in a lot of ways. And I'm very, very thankful to Drexel and Dr. Eric Zilmer, who's the previous athletic director for giving me that chance. I mean, it definitely, you know, takes some stones to hand a program to a 25 year old and they did it. And I like to think that they don't regret it. What will you talk about, you know, in those early days and your times as a GA, like you're now kind of a coach for players you were a teammate with? I'm always curious, especially when it's in the same program. Did that present any challenges within the dynamics of individual relationships? Like maybe somebody you'd go out with on Saturday night now yeah you know what you guys yeah. go like did it, did that require some proactive I've got to put up some boundaries here and, and things are going to be different yeah I mean by the time I guess by the time that I was a head coach it was really there was really one class that had to graduate out of guys that you know I had overlapped with his teammates and they were a couple of years younger but Honestly, all of those guys who were older at the time, they helped make that transition so easy and great for me. I think of guys like uh, Scott Forrester and Yosef Dance, uh, Vincent Agnes, like those guys that were there that I was friends with first, teammates with second, maybe coach third, were really supportive in the transition of this whole thing to helping me really get this thing off the ground and in the heading in the direction that we wanted it to go. So if those guys had been, you know, dragging and giving me a hard time about, you know, everything that was going on, it certainly wouldn't have been as smooth. So it really took a village, you know, of them to be supportive of what was going on and to understand as well on their end that there were going to be some, you know, new boundaries in the very beginning, you know, until they graduated. And, you know, obviously really thankful to those guys for just helping kind of get the ship out of the dock. You're the interim in the spring and then you take over. Once you become the head coach, did you know what you didn't know with regards to what it takes to put a program together or are those first few months like you're getting emails, you're getting paperwork that I need this by Friday and you're like, I don't even know what this is. Like, were there a lot of moments like that? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely jump into the ocean without floaties and just figure out how to get back to shore at the beginning. I mean, it's not like I hadn't been around mm -hmm. or, But when you know, you're the involved, guy, it's different. It's different when it falls on your plate and you're responsible for putting the trips together and for getting these guys home safe and just all of the things that are not golf related. I knew I could do the golf stuff really well. And then it's all this other stuff. And really, that's where AJ was, has been, and is, continues to be huge. He handles a lot of our logistics. He handles a lot of the travel, uh, a lot of the administrative stuff. 
things that may fall by the wayside for me. He picks me up and makes sure that I'm getting my, you know, my P card statement in on time and uh, that we're filing the proper paperwork for recruiting visits. Whereas I'm like, you know, run, 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 advance the program. He's kind of, you know, you see those coaches on the sideline that have somebody kind of pulling their collar the get back. back coach. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's AJ. And he's like, hold on, we got to do X, Y, and Z before we do, uh, do you know, the next step. So if I didn't have him, I wouldn't be able to do this job. And that go that holds true today. If he wasn't by my side as the two-man duo that we are, I wouldn't do this job. I mean, I, in every sense of the word, need him as a teammate in doing this because I've got a lot of balls in play and a lot of things on my plate all the time, and he does too, but we're able to make it work and do the things that we need to do together by just kind of bifurcating the tasks into things that he's really good at, things that I'm really good at, and it really works. I'm curious, how much does the fact that you kind of came to golf late, how much do you think now it's still, you know, you've only been really immersed in this for like 15 years. It's not something, it, I mean, that's still fresh when it comes to a career. Is that kind of a blessing that maybe you didn't, you know, hammer yourself with golf in the younger years to the point where it became a job and it's not as much fun anymore? I mean, not by design, but just the way it's played out, it, yeah. you know, is that is that big? hundred percent and something I've actually thought a good bit about where, you know, so many kids now are starting serious, serious golf at 10, 11, 12 years old. And almost like by the time you get to college, you're like done. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've got a young man on the team now, uh, Drew Nicholas, won the Patterson Cup the summer. He's from Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey. And I mean, he was one of those kids. He was a top 50 recruit in the country, traveling around, playing all of these events and like talk to him today. He chose to go to North Carolina State out of high school. And then after a year, he's like, like, man, this just isn't all that fun. And so much of it is such a big part of where my joy comes from now is that I have so much left in the tank. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, for a kid like Drew, it's about finding the joy in the game again. And why did you play? And how can we recreate that and still have high expectations of you, but to not make it a job, right? If we as coaches want it more than you want it as players, that's a losing equation. So we've got to be careful with our guys that we, you know, specifically certain guys that we aren't pushing them too, too hard. I and mean, we kind of find our pockets to push them. But for me, like, my energy and passion towards improving my golf game is only growing by the day. And obviously this summer has brought it to a new level where I'm so excited for everything that's to come. But I don't think that I have that level of energy if I'm grinding away at 12, 13, 14. And, you know, I, I really wasn't even in that mindset in college. And it's really been the last four or five years that I've kind of started to understand what I really want from this game and what I'm willing to give back to the game as well. And it's really opened up. I mean, the coaching aspect of it has been huge where it's like, hey, I, I still really want to do this at myself at a high level. Are you able to play golf for fun? And what I mean by that, go out with your buddies and just hit around and not 
not worry about, you know, oh, what, what did I hit here? Like, are you able to kind of divorce from the intensity that goes along with still with playing at the level you play and, and coaching and just go shoot 18 holes and whatever happens, happens. And I'm not going to read too much into anything. I'm not going to break it down. Are you able to do that? Um, yes, definitely still able to do that. Like it's golfers are, uh, you know, we're unique creatures. Typically when we get together with buddies, it can be fun. There can be beers, but we're also typically playing for something, right? A couple of units of pride or whatever it may be. So there's, for me, there's always got to be some kind of competitive incentive. Um, I guess the only time that wouldn't necessarily be true is when I'm, you know, going out and playing with my wife who played soccer at Drexel and she's incredibly competitive. So I know that her competitive juices are flowing. So I need to kind of be there to help her along as she kind of gets her game off the ground. But in going out with buddies, like, yeah, can totally love going out on the golf course and having a good time. Is it frustrating at times where you're like, man, I just like don't feel the juices and I can't kind of get into the intensity zone? Of course, like definitely need the arena of competition to, you know, feel that, you know, and feel like I'm getting the most out of my game or but, you know, there are different kinds of golf and should really be able to enjoy it just with the people that you play with. And I'm curious just because this is how my friends would be when you go out and you hit a bad shot. Is it forever? Oh, look at the Drexel golf coach, you know, right in the water. Yeah, it's like, uh, is there a part, yeah, is there an angle of that? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's elements of surprise and then there's also some, it's also some good banter that goes back and forth. I mean, but man, I mean, if you play golf at any level, what I tell people, I've told my wife this, I've told my mom this, I've told my friends this, it's like, you never, like, as you improve in golf, it's like, oh, if only I could be an 18 handicapper, oh, if only I could hit the ball this far, or if only I said, guys, like, at no point during your process of improving at golf, do you get less frustrated you just get frustrated at different things right there's always going to be something that falls on your plate within your game that you're frustrated about so improvement is just a straight line but it's humbling it's a humbling game no matter what level you play it i mean geez look at danny willett on this past sunday at the tour event as a three-footer to win misses it has a three-footer to force a playoff Misses it. This guy's like a this guy won the Masters. At at no level is this game gonna just respect who you are and not humble you in any way. Like golf always finds a way to win. Is there a pro golfer that you feel your game is similar to, and not even somebody that you try to emulate, but just when you kind of break it down, you know, you hit distance about the same, relatively same around the shore, maybe take the same approach. Is there anybody? I've always had like a crazy amount of respect for Zach Johnson. I mean, the guy's won two majors. He hits it uh, compared to these other guys. He doesn't hit it out of his shadow and just plays the game the right way. He's so committed to being himself out there and has put, you know, a Hall of Fame career together, just being who he is and not trying to chase, chase, chase being someone else. So I've always really respected you know, how he played the game, just how good he was at getting the ball in the hole in an efficient manner and not trying to be something that he isn't. So I've always, you know, even as I've picked up a little bit of distance, I'm still certainly not a long hitter. And I've just gotten so much more comfortable in my own skin and just continue to tell myself to be me 
out on the golf course and do what you're good at. Hit the shots that you know that you can hit. And I mean, seeing, I mean, when he won the Masters, I forget what year it was, but, you know, I'm still amazed. I mean, those par fives get eaten alive by the, by the longer hitters, by most of the guys out there. And he laid up on every single par five. And, you know, not that that's a strategy that I take on every round that I play, but it just goes to show you that he wasn't afraid to execute his game plan, even if it wasn't what 95% of the field was doing. Favorite part of being a coach? Is it practice? getting to know the guys is it that tournament when a kid you've been working with and he finally hits that shot that he's been working on like what would you kind of put at the top of the list yeah it's the favorite part to me has been when guys graduate and they come back and they say thank you because everybody's good at golf we're all grinding and trying to get better and we're there to assist them in that but like the habits that we're trying to ingrain in these guys are synonymous with life as they are golf. So like last year, Angelo and Jeffrey Cunningham were my first recruiting class. They graduated uh, after five years. And for them to come back and say, thank you, I am so much more of a man today than I was when I got here. Like that's what's meaningful. And to like see the direct impact that you can have on, you know, a young man's life. I mean, there's the golf aspect of it, but then there's like real life adversity that happens during their time at Drexel. And a couple of years ago now, you know, Jeffrey lost his mom while he was at Drexel. And for us to have the opportunity to be there for him to get down to Florida for the funeral, to just kind of be his backbone in the most difficult time of his life and for his teammates to be there for him and for it really to serve as his, you know, family up north. What I'm proud of is that we've built that foundation where these guys care about each other. They're buying into the things that we're trying to get them to do on a daily basis. And then after the fact, they can look back at it and say, man, that was that that kind of stuff was a big deal to me. And it helped me get to where I am today. Um, so my favorite part of the job really has nothing to do with golf. It's just finding the right kids that want to be pushed, that want to be coached both in golf and life and to have them drink the Kool-Aid and start repeating the things that we say and just becoming better versions of themselves. Cause ultimately, you know, AJ and I too are both still trying to become better versions of ourselves and that quest for improvement never stops. So Ultimately, the the end result of watching the transformation of an 18-year-old kid coming into a 22-year-old man leaving, that's by far the coolest thing. Ben Feld, this was a ton of fun. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Matt. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank Drexel University head men's golf coach Ben Feld for being our guest this week. If you like this show, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, want to help us out, leave us a rating and a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to check us out again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.